Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar that originally aired on October 31st. The webinar is facilitated by Manvinder Kaur and is hosted by Santbir Singh, who you'll hear about in a moment. Now, I'd like to introduce you to today's panelists. First, we have Dr. Ishmeet Garchaudhri. She teaches at the Center for English Studies at Central University of Gujarat. She works on areas related to literature of margins, social movements, and studies of violence and trauma. Her recent work has been on violence studies, engaging with discourses on women and violence and 1984 anti-Sikh carnage in Delhi. Her most recent book is Black November, Writings on Anti-Sikh Massacres of 1984 and the Aftermath. Next, we have Ryan Sinkoli. He is a practicing barrister in England and Wales and a leading practitioner in the fields of public law and judicial review. He has extensive human rights advocacy experience and provided litigation support to the team representing the families of 1984 victims to secure the conviction of Sajjan Kumar in the Delhi High Court in December 2018. Most recently, Ryan worked with the authorities on the Caribbean island of Montserrat to successfully emancipate a sick victim of modern slavery. Santhir Singh is an avid student of Sikhi. He has spoken at retreats, conferences, and youth camps for over two decades. Santhir has been trying to cultivate a deeper relationship with, with Shabad Guru while focusing on Sikh inspirations for social activism, feminism, and human rights through a critical analysis using different schools of thought and tradition. Born in Vancouver, he completed his bachelor's degree at McGill and currently lives in Toronto with his two wonderful children, amazing wife, and his crazy dog. And lastly, we have Dr. Shruti Devgan. She is a visiting assistant professor of sociology at Bowdoin College. Her research focuses on the diasporic, intergenerational, and digital memories of the 1984 anti-Sikh violence. Dr. Devgan is part of the editorial team at Sikh Research Journal, run under the aegis of the Sikh Foundation. She is especially interested in bridging the gap between academia and wider audiences, and has written for platforms such as Context, and NYU's web journal, The Revealer. Please welcome today's panelists. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much to the panelists who all have very busy schedules. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. 36 years ago this night, one of the most horrific massacres in Sikh history began. Um, when we look back at Sikh history, at the different kalukare that have happened in our past, what happened in November of 1984 really stands out in terms of the level of carnage, the number of people who were killed, the number of people who were assaulted, especially the number of women who were sexually assaulted. The numbers are really outstanding. And they occurred, these pogroms, these organized pogroms occurred 
from Haryana all the way to the south of India. But they were, of course, most felt, most uh, violent, and most organized in Delhi, in the capital of the country. And it was in Delhi that Sikh homes and businesses were systematically targeted. Uh, Sikh businesses were burnt. Sikhs were assaulted. Uh, Guru Granth Sahib were desecrated. Gurdwaras were destroyed. And many women, from young girls to grandmothers, were uh, systematically gang raped by gangs in November of 1984. This type of trauma has had a lasting impact on the community. It's had an impact on those of us who were very young at the time of 84, those who were adults and who remember what happened in 84, and those who were even born afterwards. And we'll be exploring the impact of uh, November 1984 on different generations, especially when we talk to Dr. Dave Gunn. We want to look today at what the response of the community has been, what role the law and justice can play in achieving a sense of closure for a community, and what impact this has had on the Sikh population in general. And so with that question, we want to look both at those who were uh, victimized who were assaulted, who lost family members, uh, who suffered through the pogroms directly, but also to look at what the community suffered through uh, as a whole. Because a crime like this, uh, the massacres of 1984, they really reverberate through the generations and they have an impact. If we have time, we may also look at how this plays into the wider narrative of post-partition India, of other cases of genocidal violence, for example, in Gujarat in 2002, um, what the similarities or commonalities are, we might have time to unpack that as well. And we can also look at the current state of affairs in India right now with the right-wing uh, Hindutva government and what that says for minority groups and minority populations across India. So there's a lot of different aspects that we can get into. We're really lucky to have some incredible panelists. We have two professors with us who have dedicated their scholarly careers to studying 1984 and the impact of November 1984. And we have with us a leading barrister or lawyer for those of you who are not from Britain, uh, who has given a considerable amount of his time and energy to helping the community in this issue. So we have some subject matter experts, and hopefully we'll be able to get some really interesting perspectives from them. I want to begin by speaking to Dr. Chaudhary, and I want to ask her, she has studied, and she's actually even edited a book and the book, very interestingly, has both short stories, um, the narratives of people who perhaps were not there in 1984, and also survivor accounts of people who experienced November 1984. And I want to ask her, what role do narratives play for a community to heal 
and what types of narratives has the Sikh community produced in the last three decades? Thank you. Uh, I'll begin by thanking Sikri to, uh, for organizing uh, this webinar today. Um, I think Santhpeer has uh, raised a very, very important question because I come from the discipline of English literature and uh, uh, my inquiry into the subject uh, began by locating literature on um, the anti-Sikh uh, uh, massacres uh, in New Delhi particularly. Uh, later on, of course, the inquiry extends into other places uh, like Kanpur, Bokaro, and uh, almost across India, uh, you know, wherever uh, there were cases of violence. Um, what has happened in all these years, uh, you know, we are in the 36th year of it. We've actually added uh, 36 years of impunity or 36 years of injustice in the history you know, of the Sikh narratives. So in a way, we have been failed. And uh, um, here I kind of uh, begin with, everybody knows what happened uh, to people, you know. So, so um, I don't want to go back to talking about the mode, how it happened and what actually happened. We know the kind of killings that had happened. We've always been speaking about it, um, the method and the kind of uh, the gruesome nature of it. What is important today is that where do we take our discourse from here? You know, when we know this has happened and when we know that, you know, our latest sit, which came out in December 2019, actually says that, you know, we have lost years. So therefore, uh, you know, a wise investigation is kind of not possible. You know, so, so what do we as a community consider this to be? That's one important thing. And from here, where do we go? You know, so, so when institutions have failed, where systems have failed, where, um, you know, legal structures have also failed, you know, where do we go? And who's going to talk about our stories? So the inquiry is that, that who's going to talk about our stories? You know, nobody from outside is going to come and talk about our stories. We have to do it for ourselves. And I, I very clearly remember I was six years old when 84 happened. We were in Shimla. Um, there was a mob attack. We were saved by our next door neighbor. And this was uh, how we grew up. My, my father had an experience where he was othered by his friends and uh, you know there were some derogatory remarks passed on him asked to cut his hair um, there were derogatory remarks on harmandar saab but my father never opened up these stories to us and when i asked him you know at an age when i was 34 that where were these narratives he said you had an experience you know where a neighbor had saved you and that was a very positive experience where you know, a Hindu neighbor, Ravinder Randev, had saved you. You had to grow up with that positivity. Because at the end of it, in the darkest of times, we got to live with hope. And Ravinder Randev was also an example to me that if I am in such a situation, what role will I as a human being play? Right? Would I be another Ravinder Randev? Or would I be a participant in, uh, you know, the mob? who was actually attacking at this Gurdwara, which was right in front of our house. 
So the inquiry began from there, and um, he happened to say that who's going to write about our narratives, you know. And, and then we did see a closure to other kinds of cases, like, you know, there was a closure to Godra. You know, many cases, many people were brought to books, but nobody cared about the sick cases. You know, no, uh, the eminent sick leaders still roam scot-free. People who were participants in the mob still roam scot-free. And what is left with us is something like, and I don't know how many more of those colonies would be there of which we are not aware. But so what is left to us is a colony, uh, you know, a widow's colony, quote unquote. You know. and, and that is what becomes our struggle for justice. That is what becomes our stories, you know, where we are victimized. That also becomes our stories of strength. So on one hand, where we are being victimized, you know, and these women come up, when they narrate their stories, they deliver to us stories of strength. So what is the role that literature plays at this time? You know, we don't have the number of women who were molested. Nobody has, neither does the community have them, nor does the government structures have them. Where is our documentation? And there are reports, you know, some very powerful women, and I like to name Madhukeshwar and uh, Pratiksha Bakshi, you know, who actually documented what happened to these women. And, and they talk about the gang rapes, as Santbir mentioned. Right? They talk about how these women were molested. They talk about, you know, 15 men on one women. And then these women talk about that, you know, they wanted to cover the bodies of their girls, but they could never do it. And it was a night where the rapes continued continuously. Where are those numbers? And when, when these go undocumented, that is where, you know, literature comes forward. When literature ex registers this experience, which has been ignored, you know, it is registering the reality and it saves, it documents it, you know, so that people read it and they realize. And I always say, 84 is not just my story of being sick. 84 is my story. It is your story. It is my neighbor's story. And it is the story of every person who's participating in the mob. So it's shared. Responsibilities are shared. So we really cannot, you know, we have to rise above the blame games and we have to look inwards and we have to think about how do we kind of project these stories. We have the data, you know, whatever little, I mean, we don't have uh, immense data, but whatever little data we have, we have it. What do we do with that? How do we present that data? How do we bring that data into the public domain? And that is where literature, you know, exercises its power. That is where it, literature gives us and, uh, you know, a method to express what people have gone through. It is that voice which allows you to reclaim, you know, which allows you to revoke. You know, it's that voice which has been deliberately muted, you know, which is now being heard through literature. And, and you know, and there is a form, there is a medium. Um, how do you present this data, you know? Will you write a short story or will you write a poem, you know, or are you going to you know, kind of write plays? Will it be always a tragic medium of expressing or 
can comedy do something marvelous with this material no so so that is where you know when everything goes unaccounted literature chips in thank you that was very powerful and beautiful you touched on a lot of different topics i wish we had time to unpack them all i think one of the really interesting ideas is this idea that the impunity as it uh, goes over time it's almost a revictimization uh, of the people who are victimized, the lack of justice. And the storytelling in a way is a, this reclaiming of the narrative and, and a, a, a powerful way for both individuals and a community to heal. And it, it's really interesting because for six, storytelling or telling of narratives is really central to our tradition. You know, kata, uh, sakis, tadivara, um, this, these are from the beginning of our tradition, this idea of, of using narrative to build a community and to stitch together a community. And with that, I want to turn to Dr. Devgan because you've looked a lot, Dr. Devgan, at the impact that November 84 has had on the diaspora, whatever that means, and that's it can be a vague term sometimes, but we can take it to mean in this case, perhaps uh, all six who are living outside of South Asia, for example, or outside of Punjab. And also looking at um, the second and first generation responses and how they have responded to this, both using narrative, I think, and also uh, in your case, you've really studied um, how they've used the internet, for example to commemorate it. So if you could just share a little bit of your research and your thoughts on that, and you can touch also on what uh, Dr. Trodi said as well, if you wish. Thanks so much for that question, Samthir, and thanks so much, uh, Sikri, for inviting us uh, for this really important panel. Um, so I think I'll start with talking about, so the diaspora, when we talk about the Sikh diaspora, you're right that um, it, it's, it's something um, uh, it's it's an ambiguous it, it, it can be really ambiguous term hard to define but uh, the important thing to remember there is that Sikhs are embedded in these transnational relationships so they have they've always had connections with Sikhs who live outside Punjab and outside India they've always had connections with India Punjab especially after 1984 with Punjab so the the rift between being an Indian and being a Sikh uh, being a Sikh and being a Punjabi came about in 1984. Um, so uh, in talking about the responses of the diaspora, even in the immediate aftermath, even as 1984 was unfolding in India, and when we talk about 1984, of course, we're talking about the events that happened in June and in November, what we are commemorating today, but also events that preceded that particular year and then the whole a whole decade, if not more, uh, after 1984. So one of the things that I try to do in my uh, in my research is to just use 1984 as a shorthand to talk about these tensions between the Sikh community and the Indian state. Uh, so um, the diaspora, even as 1984 was unfolding in June and in uh, November, the diaspora was responding uh, in quite explicit and vocal ways. Um, also, the, the fact that the way in which the media was relaying the story of 1984 in India versus uh, the story that was being told in the diaspora, there was a difference. 
uh, stories, news stories are always constructed. Uh, uh, but uh, so it's not to say that the stories that the diaspora, the people outside India uh, were, were consuming weren't constructed, but it was a more comprehensive account. Uh, so they were they were you know responding to this those stories and they they were also of course not in that context which was a highly repressive context with you know media blackout and the community feeling highly uh, threatened and it was uh, an atmosphere of great fear suspicion um, just a really difficult time to be a Sikh in India uh, especially in Delhi Punjab and other parts where the violence was unfolding. Um, so uh, even though the diaspora was responding in the immediate aftermath, it, you know, because of the nature of events, given that uh, this was, you know, this was highly traumatic and, uh, you know, uh, just uh, really difficult to articulate these events. Uh, it wasn't until much later, at least until 20 years or so later, that narrative started emerging, what Dr. Chaudhary was talking about. So to find a language for experiences that are, you know, as um, uh, as terrible as the events of 1984, it's very hard to do that. Even language uh, turns out to be inadequate. But even if it's inadequate, that's maybe the only one of the, if not the only, then one of the most important means to to narrate the experiences or to narrate the feelings of suffering and loss. Uh, so, uh, so it wasn't until a passage of time that the diaspora also started sort of creating these narratives, these more, uh, you know, the kind of narratives that we are seeing today, the sort of culture of memory that's emerging today. And the second generation, uh, uh, or, you know, the children of, uh, uh, or direct descendants of survivors and witnesses, as well as those six in the diaspora who, who either came here at a very young age, or grew up in the diaspora, they had a really important part, or they have a really important part in creating these narratives in the diaspora. And they in turn have, because like I was saying, Sikhs are, you know, they, they are situated in these transnational networks and circuits. The narratives that are being, uh, you know, composed to, or, or uh, you know, put together here, pieced together here today, have an impact on what goes on in India and vice versa, what's happening in India has, or in Punjab has an impact here. Uh, so uh, the people that I spoke with were people in, uh, you know, these were first generation I define as people who directly suffered the violence or they were already in the diaspora and responded to the violence at the time. And then second generation is children of of these, uh, you know, like I was saying before, uh, of, of these people who suffered the violence or uh, uh, even even children, uh, you know, even uh, people who have no direct connection with with the events, but you know, they are children of parents who came here, the, the generation that came here before them. Uh, and they are doing what I call the work of memory or the labor of memory. Uh, not all second generation Sikhs are doing this work of memory, right? So I spoke with uh, second generation Sikhs who are using especially digital media to tell the stories of 1984. And there were different, uh, there were different, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, different um, responses or different ways in which second generation Sikhs started doing this work or labor of memory. So like you were saying, uh, and, and perhaps Sanbir, you were part of that cohort uh, where second generation Sikhs were adolescents at the time that, uh, you know, the, the events, the violence of 1984 unfolded. And 
you know, they have some memory of, of just listening about the violence, either through media, through phone calls, or, you know, maybe some sort of television, radio, it's what is called uh, media witnessing. So they witnessed it through media somehow, but especially through their parents, through their or other elder, elder, uh, elders in their family, in the community, in Gurdwaras, etc. So that, you know, the fact that they had that uh, in some way direct connection uh, has an impact on why they are remembering the the you know uh, the uh, these these events today or why they're remembering the violence today uh, because they have that sort of you know they have some sort of memories uh, or it's about familial transmission for them they they remember how their parents or the other uh, you know other elderly people in the community reacted at the time and then there are uh, second generation Sikhs who have uh, no, uh, you know, they 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 were very little at the time, so they had no real re recollection. Uh, they might have grown up in families where their parents uh, or other, you know, immediate family members suffered the violence, but these events were never really talked about in their families in explicit, open ways. And those six, we, uh, you know, uh, in, um, in in sociologies, other social sciences and humanities, uh, they those six have what what are known as post memories. So they they remember only by means of stories, and these stories are only fragmented and half told. So you know uh, they grew up in these families where uh, you know that like I was saying, their parents might have suffered the violence, but they, it was never really spoken about or spoken about in hushed tones. So they remember they only you know try to piece together those traces, those fragments, and their memory is not really they remember of course, but what they remember is what they imagine, what they project, and the sort of emotional connection that they have with those events. Uh, so those are the other kinds of Sikhs. And then there are, of course, Sikhs who had no connection with um, with 1984 directly because their parents or any other you know, members of their family or friends did not directly suffer in the events. But when they first learned about the events, um, and a lot of them learned about these events, uh, you know, as, as teenagers uh, in, in Sikh camps, when they first learned about them, they sort of uh, provided a rite of passage for them. And um, um, what was also really important about what they were learning was, of, of course, the fact that they were learning about the events, but how they were learning about these events. The story that the stories that they were learning in these camps and other community spaces like Gurdwaras were very different from the stories, again, that were being told in India. In India, there continues to be a lot of silence. There continues to be a lot of denial. Um, uh, you know, it's it, yeah, there is certainly a culture of memory that's emerging, it, even in just the time when I first started doing my research and now I see a difference. But the kind of stories that they were learning, uh, you know, they were they were learning facts very differently from what people in India were absorbing. And so who tells the story and how they tell it has an impact on how people remember. And so that's the other segment uh, of six. And then Memories are also defined by not just what happened in the past, but where we are at present. So scholars talk about how memory acts in the present to represent the past. So, uh, you know, experience of, uh, experiences of racialization, stigmatization that Sikhs go through uh, in, in the diaspora uh, has an impact on how they try to then, you know, uh, try to trace back, uh, you know, the, the sort of lineage of genealogy of suffering and 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 so 1984 is an important aspect of that thank you thank you for sharing that and your work and you know i have to say it's very it's almost surreal to hear you describe your work because it uh it's my own story in a lot of ways um i was 
four years old when 1984 happened. So my memories are very fragmented um, and they mainly involve, uh, you know, remembering my parents being on the phone and everybody being very upset. And then over time, seeing the difference with even family, I have family in Delhi that directly experienced the pogroms and seeing the experience in North America and in the UK, where there was almost a revival of Sikhi as a response to the events, especially of June 84, but also of November 84. Whereas in South Asia, especially outside of Punjab, there was a silencing of Sikhi in a lot of ways. Um, so these very different ways that the diaspora and that the home community dealt with this trauma, very interesting. Um, and the role of camps and so forth. I remember going to camps when I was younger and first hearing, uh, you know, human rights accounts and learning about Jaswant and Kalura and learning about what happened in 1984. And that uh, brings me really well to our last panelist, um, Mr. Kohli. And Mr. Kohli played a very unique part in an event that a lot of us, to be quite frank, never thought would have been possible. And that's the fact that Sardar Fulka spent you know, decades trying to get justice within the Indian court system for the victims of 1984. And for many of us, especially in the diaspora growing up, we thought that that was an impossibility, that that would never occur and we would never see any fruit of that labor. Um, and you, Mr. Kohli, played a part, I know not a huge part, but an integral part of that case. And I'd like you to explain what role you played in helping Sadar Fulka, uh, the brief that you prepared, and also a little bit about how uh, you use the precedent of World War II uh, in order to inform your legal stance that you prepared for him. First of all, Waigruji Kakalso, Waigruji Kakalso, everybody. I'm deeply humbled uh, to be here um, with this esteemed panel. People like Ashmeet and Shruti have truly devoted a large part of their professional lives uh, to this issue. I can't claim to be in that category. Um, I am a practicing barrister who practices in um, all sorts of areas, including um, planning law, landlord and tenant law. But I'm also a child of 84, as it were. I was uh, born in November 83, so I was one year old when um, the awful programs of 84 happened. And I grew up in a Sikh household where the shadow of 84 was ever present. It was a large part of my childhood. Um, uh, and as I was maturing and growing up and going to university and so on and, and becoming more aware of Sikhi and what Sikhi was and what Sikhi meant to me, 84 was a big part of that. So when I chose to become a lawyer, I had some um, semblance of, of a want to assist my community in some way in achieving justice for 84. I had no idea how that would come about. And I can't even say that I was the engine that, that drove forward what eventually happened, because what eventually happened was pretty opportunistic um, from my point of view. And, and thank goodness it happened, because I feel like I've now played some small part in uh, assisting our community achieving justice. So just wind back to um, 2002. I was an undergraduate at Oxford University. I was very fortunate to be the recipient of a uh, scholarship 
which was put together by some sick alumni of Oxford University. And the basis for that scholarship was to try and um, assist those who are likely to be in positions of leadership in our society and those who, are, who have a Sikh background, who, who are Sikh, to understand a bit more about what it means to be a Sikh in the 21st century. And clearly, 84 is a, is a huge part of that. Um, as part of that scholarship process, I was introduced to um, Harinder Singh and a number of other um, prominent individuals in uh, the Sikh Research Institute, um, who in turn gave me a really deep understanding, a forensic understanding of what evidence existed as to um, precisely what happened in uh, 84 uh, and the pogroms. And I think evidence gathering was not high on the list of anybody's agenda um, during uh, 84. Indeed, I think the Indian state probably did as much as they could to suppress uh, such evidence gathering. But what happened in the years after 84, I, I came to understand from my involvement with Harinder Singh and others, is that some very committed Sikhs um, who, who were very professional took the witness statements and affidavits of, of many of those who contemporaneously witnessed the events of what happened. Um, and that in turn informed a number of the commissions of inquiry that were set up. I think there were four commissions of inquiry in total, the last being um, the commission of uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Nanavati. And that was where a number of affidavits were filed by people who witnessed the events of um, uh, 84 and the pogroms of 84, particularly, particularly in, in Delhi. Um, and a number of people who fed into that in commission of inquiry between 2000 and 2005 started to name prominent individuals such as Kamal Nath, Jagdish Teitler, and of course, Sajjan Kumar. And these names kept coming up in the contemporary, contemporaneous accounts of those who were responsible for the events of uh, 1984. And having left my time at Oxford, I was left with a very clear indication in my mind that there were high profile individuals out there who had yet to face justice for the events of 84. Individuals who had gone so far as identifying from the voters' rolls the lists of those sick households in Delhi that should be targeted uh, in 84. Those who had gone so far as arming the mobs, handing out kerosene, handing out um, weapons, uh, handing out lists of names. These were prominent individuals who were still very active in politics in India at the time. And so I made a vow to myself that were the opportunity to arise, I would seize that opportunity and try and help in whatever way I could. So I was contacted pretty much out of the blue. You know, we're fast forwarding um, a decade later uh, in uh, the middle part of uh, 2018, probably towards the end of it, uh, by Harinder Singh, who said that Sadar Fulka was representing the victims of the families of 84 in the Delhi High Court. And he was there supporting the government of India, ironically, who were appealing against the acquittal of Sajjan Kumar in the lower court. Um, and what Sadar Fulka was doing was supporting the government of India's case. The government of India were convinced that Sajjan Kumar had a central role to play and should have been convicted for that role, for that role. And of course, Sadar Fulka had the very victims of 84's families on his side um, who were able to support him. But what Sadar Fulka needed from me and from those who worked with me um, was how to get over this lack of direct contemporaneous evidence naming 
Sajjan Kumar in connection with the events of 84. Now, I'm sure that there were people who went to the police in 84 and named Sajjan Kumar. The problem was the Commission of Justice Nalabati in 2005, when he uh, eventually reported, um, had affidavits from individuals who had given their evidence for that commission of inquiry. So the evidence, if you like, came much later than the events in question. And the judge who was determining Sajjan Kumar's case at the lower level decided that the evidence wasn't good enough because it came so long after the events in question. And so for that reason, primarily, the case against Sajjan Kumar was thrown out. Now, um, Fulkaji and the government of India both took the view that that was pretty uh, shoddy reasoning. Because if you have an entire state whose machinery is directed against a particular community, it is no wonder that there is good quality contemporaneous evidence naming Sajjan Kumar at the time that the 84 events happened. So our challenge was, or my challenge was, uh, to write a brief for Sardar Fulka using international examples of where other um, uh, situations had happened around the world where non-contemporaneous evidence was still given substantial weight when determining the guilt of an assailant. And so the example of World War II was a very fortuitous one because we had an authority in the Court of Appeal in England and Wales uh, called Swaniuk. And in Swaniuk, we had an individual who was acquitted um, at, at trial. He was a Nazi concentration camp guard, so it, so it was alleged. But the judge, in giving his direction to the jury in Swaniuk's case, directed the jury that they should place little weight on the lack of contemporaneous evidence. All the evidence had come much later on against this chap. And of course, what our um, higher courts did here in England and Wales was analyze that and say, well, look, you can't really um, rely on the lack of contemporaneous evidence in Nazi Germany. The entire system was twisted against the Jewish people. And so, of course, when Jewish people turned up to give their accounts and name the individuals involved, those accounts weren't going to be recorded. Those accounts weren't going to be taken seriously. Those accounts were not going to be investigated. It was only when there was a bit of, um, it was only when the Nazi regime fell and there was a European renaissance really and an understanding about what happened with the Holocaust that people's accounts started to be um, documented. And so we used that example of the case of Swaniuk, which was a persuasive authority uh, in England and Wales, to feed into the case against Sajjan Kumar and say, look, this is how courts in other countries have approached this issue of a lack of contemporaneous evidence. Yes, ideally, we would have mountains of it naming Sajjan Kumar um, from uh, 1984, from evidence taken in 1984. But I'm sorry, the state was not set up like that in a way that took that evidence seriously, um, maintained it, kept it, and, and was used to build a, a serious case against him because the, the state and the police were not um, interested, frankly, in the Sikh plight. And there are many examples of where the police, um, in fact, uh, assisted or turned a blind eye at the very uh, uh, the very best to what was happening in, in the anti-Sikh pogroms. So by giving Sardar Fulka those tools of, of those international comparisons and those international cases, he was then able to feed into the appeal against Sajjan Kumar's acquittal. Um, and what was really remarkable about that case, and Sardar Fulka deserves a huge debt of gratitude from our community, is that 
the um, High Court in Delhi uh, uh, said in no uncertain terms that what happened to the six in 84 was a crime against humanity. Uh, and that is a big term to be used um, by a court. It's a recognition that these were not random events. These were not riots. These were organized pogroms against six that were in some ways um, state-backed. And that, that's, that was a huge step forward. And, and so to play a small part, to play my small role in achieving that is something I will forever be grateful for. And as I say, I mean, it, it, it was opportunism. It was, it was Kirpa from God, if you like, that I was able to play that role because I wasn't going out looking for it. I was, I was in the right place at the right time and I had the right skill set to be able to assist. And um, as I say, I will forever be grateful for, for that opportunity. Yeah, I think the community will always be grateful for you as well for the role you played. So thank you for that. Hi, I wanted to take a quick little break to let you know about a few things. You can look at upcoming webinars on our website at sickre.org. And while you're there, please consider becoming a donor. It's with the help from our audiences that the team at Sikri is able to continue exploring sick knowledge and illuminating the voices in the community. Or consider becoming a supporter of the SickCast by clicking on support on our anchor.fm page. However, this podcast is free to all. So if you do like the show, tell some of your friends and family about us. I found it uh, interesting how we were talking again about narratives uh, and the fact that the stories about 84 couldn't be told at the time, they had to be told afterwards. Um, and it was those stories that were then able to be used in this specific court case. And then that court case, for example, uh, has been used by six um, in the diaspora. For example, in Ontario, it was used by six in the diaspora to uh, have the November pogroms called genocide. Um, uh, by the Ontario legislature. So we see how there's an interweaving of narrative, diaspora, and these uh, stories. And I wonder, uh, Dr. Jodhi, uh, what, when you look at the experience of the community 36 years onward, is there, um, as time goes on, is there a difference that starts to arise in the stories? Is there, does uh, time give a different perspective? For example, I imagine when we talk about stories about partition, that the stories that were produced by the first generation um, in the 50s and 60s would be very different than the stories that were produced in the 90s or the 2000s about partition once there's that time. Has there been a difference as time has moved on in the in the narrative or in the type of narrative that's been told in the community? Yes, um, absolutely. And I'm going to answer this in two parts. You know, um, I'm going to take up uh, uh, literature with its extended definition first. So, I mean, kind of what comprises of literature. So anything that maybe has a narrative comprises of literature. It may be a film, it may be an interview. Uh, the book I did has affidavits, you know, uh, we may call it testimonies, but then they have, and these were affidavits which were selected, uh, you know, on the basis that they were self-written. 
So uh, these were not kind of official templates, but uh, people chose to write their own uh, narratives and uh, some of them were selected for the book. And so, so I wanted to offer an extended definition of literature and um, looking at also uh, the various kinds of literatures which come, uh, you know, from um, self experiences, from personal narratives and a lot of literatures of the margins offer these personal experiences. So uh, one portion that we have is of interviews and um, I must definitely mention Uma Chakraborty and Nandita Haksar who did a very bold job right in 1985 and came out with a book of interviews in 1987. Uh, where they recorded uh, interviews of the people who were in the camps. So, uh, and when I did my field research, um, we visited um, the Tilak Bihar's widow's colony. And in fact, till date, I keep talking to everybody. You know, I always say that Churasi is a fixed site of memory. And it's, you know, uh, there were stories like um, you just said that, you know, there's stories at home, you literally... Ran actually said that you grow up with these stories. So uh, since we were placed in Shimla and Shimla was a tourist uh, place and uh, anybody who came to our house, one thing was sure to be discussed. What was the loss in Churasi? So uh, we all grew up with those stories. So somebody talked about, uh, you know, how they had overcome the violence how, or how they escaped or how everything was lost, how they saved themselves but their properties were gone, so on and so forth. So we had those stories, you know, just around us. And I still, I'm still very curious about knowing these stories. Uh, and so there were these interviews which uh, I went through, uh, Uma Chakrabarti's and Nandita Haksar's. And those interviews are seminal. They are a very, very bold depiction of what happened. Uh, they, they have varied info, interviews of Granthis, of people of different castes. There is an interview of a Dalit activist in there. And of course, the uh, survivors. Now, the survivors' narrative in 85 are more about expressing shock at what happened to them. A lot of people talked about how they were Congress supporters, and uh, many uh, of their husbands were actually mourning the assassination of uh, the Prime Minister, Mrs. Indira Gandhi. And um, uh, one woman in one of the other essays by Uma Chakraborty uh, talks about her, how her husband was fasting uh, owing to the death of uh, Mrs. Gandhi. And so these people talk about their loyalty towards Congress. They also talk about how uh, Congress's schemes of you know, micro loans had helped them, um, you know, set up small businesses and they were at a verge where they were doing pretty good and uh, their lives were, uh, uh, you know, modest but decent. And all of a sudden, the 84 massacre um, had turned them into nothing. Uh, and these women were left without family, without men. So, so there's a sense of shock. They talk about what actually happened. You know, how were their children, how were their families, how were their men killed? And um, 36 years down the line, in fact, 34 years down the line in 2014, when uh, you know I did my field research, I realized that there was a change in narrative. 
the change was that now these women women were talking as if they were actually theorists you know i mean and i'm talking from a scholarship point of view like as if they were theorists their experiences had made them theorists so they were they were talking about naming the violence they didn't want to call it riot they said they were pogroms they were state orchestrated they were genocidal in nature uh they talked about uh, uh they questioned the sikh leadership itself they questioned government they were blatantly pointing out you know at uh, congress to be uh, you know to partnering uh, the violence and in fact uh, organizing the violence and so they have become very assertive and then they talk about justice they talk about human rights so so there is a sizable uh, you know assertion which we tend to see in their narratives today one thing which um, i really feel worried about and also sad about is that though these women are now uh, opening up and they have opened up they have spoken but now they are being very assertive they do not allow their children to speak they are still very protective about their children they are still very protective about the next generation they don't want anybody to touch them so that fear has still not gone and if i have to talk about healing healing has not happened when they were talking to us they were crying we were crying with them when they uh, when we approached them again you know they were again talking about the difficulties they face in day to day life they still remember what has happened with them and their bodies and and actually the problem is that the community could not overcome this primarily because there was no empowerment for the new generations they could not get decent employment they lost their children to drugs to depression neither as a sick community nor as a government responsibility was anybody anybody able to you know um address the problems of these women in a more organized way there were people who helped there were groups which did charity but the real kind of empowerment is what is still needed and in many forums i am bringing this forward and i am saying that again here i am repeating myself and i am saying that again we have still not lost it we can still empower their children we can still give them decent education we can still give them decent jobs and we cannot expect a system which has failed us to do that for us it is the community which will have to do it so this is one part of the answer and the second part of the answer is coming to the conventional literature writing stories or writing plays or writing novels it took a lot of time for people to write literature addressing 1984 particularly in english we do see early representations in uh, regional languages uh, still the kind of representation which should have emerged from punjabi did not emerge but we do see um, traces here there an asmi's novel or uh, you know a malayalam story which did uh, address 84 at a very early stage in hindi uh, 
Mahip Singh wrote, and there was a collection of short stories uh, by Tiwari, which came out right in um, 85 itself. Uh, so we do see this, but in English, you know, where it was to be addressed to a global audience, uh, there was a lack of uh, storytelling, lack of novels, lack of plays, and even, um, you know, short stories, and even poetry for that matter. So uh, maybe it took about, you know, if it took a decade for partition stories to come out, it took almost two and a half decades for stories of 84 to come out. Mm. The survivors got, uh, you know, they were going through this struggle, so they could not write. The writers did not write. Amitabh, Amitabh Ghosh, much later on, addresses this issue, issue, issue and he says that, you know, perhaps there's a responsibility that a writer is supposed to uh, practice, you know, when depicting uh, these stories and there's a certain kind of a sensitivity. And personally, it took him some time to, uh, you know, depict that kind of a sens uh, sensitivity. But interestingly, uh, some stories, and I think it's very important to address that, came out from people who did not belong to the community. And uh, they were people who have very sensibly and very sensitively, you know, addressed this issue. Uh, our book um, had a section on short stories where we got um, you know, people from different communities to write. And a South Indian woman writes about, uh, you know, what happened in her part of the city. Um, you know, she's uh, Dr. Rachel Bari. Um, we had uh, uh, Dr. Harish uh, Narang, who wrote about how, uh, you know, there is um, uh, misunderstood identity, how a traveler is traveling in the train and from the reservation chart, you know, the mob reads a sing after his name and comes to kill him. And he keeps shouting that he is not the sick sing. He is a UP sing you know, a man who, who came from uh, Uttar Pradesh. And and uh, so so these uh, were the kind of stories. And then uh, Vikram Kapoor did uh, two amazing volumes, one novel uh, called Assassins and also a collection of personal essays and short stories where he brought out. And Vikram Kapoor talks about his own experience of his best friend and how he saw times changing for his best friend. So, so these stories, the change in the stories that we see, you know, uh, instead of beating around the victimization card, uh, there was also a certain strain of irony. So some of these stories talked about that you do this to us, but you are not safe yourself in doing this to us. So one of the stories by Parminder Mehta uh, is about two buddies, uh, you know, who go to school or to college every day and they ride one single scooter, one Hindu boy and a sick boy. And how a sick boy, you know, this sick boy who's the friend is now being burnt by the mob. So he's been gallanted with the tire with a burning tire and the father of this Hindu friend is a participant in the mob. This friend comes and at the moment the father realizes that the friend has come, he uh, slips, he skips the mob. And the friend comes and hugs, you know, his burning sick friend. And in an attempt to save him, he also gets burnt. Now the last scene of the story shifts to a hospital and there the doctor comes and says that the Hindu boy has come to 
his injuries, whereas the sick boy may survive. So, so there's this kind of a irony, you know. So if you do this to us, even you are not safe, mm. you know. So what kind of a world are we bring? Are we building around us, you know? So, so again, I repeat my statement that it's my story, it's your story, it's my neighbor's story, and it's story of everybody participating in the mob, you know. So this this is the assertion that we tend to see, you know. So, so it's like I think. Something elating that has happened in a very short span. Now we see a lot of literature coming up, and uh, what's happening is, you know, writers are moving above the blame game. You know, it's it's not just they're just not looking at this discourse as a discourse which okay Congress did. They're saying okay, this is repetitive. So Churasi is central to India. But symbolic chaurasi is everywhere around the world, and if it is repetitive in India, then we have not moved away from chaurasi even once. Mm. You know, today, Joy Hazarika was talking about Sam, and he said that there are other kinds of violences which we need to look at. So, so it's like you know, symbolic chaurasi is still present. Mm. So, how are we to look at them in our, you know, literatures is a very, very important question. Thank you. And that uh, call that you gave there, I think we should reiterate that it's not too late uh, for healing and empowerment of those victims. And I think the fact that they were women um, and what they suffered through, also the community's inability to come to terms with that in a lot of ways um, and to be there for them, um, that's really something that is on the communities, on all of us that we weren't able to be there for the survivors. Uh, we've got quite a few interesting questions uh, being asked here. And so I'm going to um, ask you all a few questions. If you could try to keep your answers a little shorter so we can get through the questions. The first one I want to ask to both uh, Dr. Devgan and Mr. Goli. And this is a question from Jaskiran in Brampton. And Jaskin says, in the diaspora, for example, in Canada, there has been a big effort to have the massacre be called and classified as a genocide. How important is it to have the word genocide be used? So maybe, uh, Dr. Devgan, you can give us your perspective on why it's important for the diaspora to, to use this term genocide. And Mr. Kohli, you can maybe speak a little bit about what it means legally for something to be termed a genocide and why that's important. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Devgan. Right. Thank you for that question. So, yeah, absolutely. Language is terribly important because language really does shape reality, right? So what we call something, the semantics of something, uh, that's how it really sort of materializes, actualizes. And in this case, language is terribly important because it's about uh, it's it's about it's it's this it's the struggle for 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 memory for truth for justice right so to talk about uh, the violence as uh, as organized as orchestrated to not dismiss the idea that uh, you know this was a carnage it was genocidal it's it's uh, it's important because it's going to shape the narrative of this event for years to come right and we're talking about the intergenerational transmission 
uh, of of this violence and how uh, you know it's it's really it's it's shaping uh, future generations. So how we talk about it is important to understand what happened in the past and how we will remember it in the future. And like I'm saying, it really is shaping reality. So, so language is terribly important. And to wrest the narrative away from the Indian state, because the Indian state still dismisses it as violent, uh, as riots, for example, or you know, this discourse of everyone who is talking about 1984 as a terrorist in some way, or or uh, you know, a, a seditionist in in some way. It's it's highly problematic. And so, language is of utmost importance. Okay. Thank you. Uh, for that perspective. And Mr. Kohli, can you speak a little bit about the idea of the ge the term genocide legally? Sure. I, I mean, I, I agree with the sentiment there expressed by Shruti. And from a legal perspective, the reason um, why the term genocide is important is because it connotes um, the state's accountability for a concentrated effort to obliterate um, a group such as the six. And that's what 84 was, in my view. It was a state-sponsored effort to obliterate the heart of the six. Um, that they, they wanted to take away uh, what, what the essence of the Sikh community was. And it's a sign of strength of our community that, uh, and if you look at our history, there have been many such attempts in the past. None of them worked. This one uh, hasn't worked. Uh, and I think we have emerged um, stronger from it. So. The reason it's important from a legal perspective is that it doesn't let the state off the hook. Internationally, as soon as you say there's been a genocide, the international community immediately calls the state of India to account. How can you allow a genocide to occur on your watch? You boast that you're the biggest democracy in the world, yet you allowed a genocide to happen. So the, the use of the term genocide and the recognition that it was a genocidal act is, is terribly important from an international perspective in focusing people's minds internationally on what happened in 84. It's calling a spade a spade. Let's not beat around the bush. This was a systematic effort to strike at the heart of six. Um, and and that's, why, that's why it's important. It's all about accountability. Thank you. That, uh, that idea that words matter, accountability, um, I think it also gives a sense of purpose for us in the diaspora because there can be a feeling of helplessness of what can we do. I'm getting a few questions here, especially as Dr. Ishmitkor was speaking um, about what can we do to reach out to those directly affected? How can we help the children who have uh, grown up in this culture of fear? Um, what uh, what can we uh, do to assist those who have been victimized? Um, I will leave those questions um, for the end, perhaps. And uh, Dr. Ishmitkor or Dr. Shruti, if you know of organizations or groups that are doing positive work with survivors, you can share that information. Or uh, maybe the Sick Research Institute can send out a quick email to participants um, afterwards with organizations that they can support. So that will cover those questions. I have a really interesting question here and I wanna ask it to uh, whichever one of you feels comfortable to respond to it. And Dr. Jodhi, you almost uh, actually touched on this topic, the idea that 
that jealousy doesn't end, that jealousy continues if there's no coming to terms with it, if there's no ability to uh, understand why and what happened that and have some type of justice for it, that these types of incidents will occur in the future. We have here, um, let me find the question. So Karanjit Singh from New York is asking, is genocide possible in today's day and date in India? So in today's day and date in India, is genocide still a possibility? Um, and we all know what's been happening with our Muslim sisters and brothers uh, under the RSS uh, government, uh, but a level of a genocide or pogrom like what happened in 84 or 2002, do you feel that that is something that's still possible even in a world of social media and uh, everybody being so connected? And any, feel, any of you feel, feel uh, go ahead and respond to that. Uh, I, I can offer a quick response to that because that's just something that that happened not so long ago in February in Delhi, for example, right? The carnage mm. that happened in Delhi. And again, that was, it was horrific and uh, interesting how the parallels between what happened in 1984 and what happened in Delhi in February uh, just this year. Uh, again, it was dismissed as riots. It was completely organized. In fact, if anything, because of social media, those voices, uh, you know, the, the the political leadership that was actually uh, orchestrating this violence, their voices were much amplified and it was everywhere. What was really shocking uh, and what's extremely disturbing for me is to think about the sort of support that uh, the right-wing government in India enjoys. And I think it, it's it's not just possible; it's happening. As you know, it's happening at the moment. Uh, there there are things that get covered in the news, and then there's still stuff even with social media that doesn't really, uh, you know, that doesn't really see the light of the day. So so absolutely, not just possible; it's absolutely happening. Yeah, so. and that's really the problem with impunity. We saw that in Punjab after '84 with the Punjab police uh, and the systematic torture and sexual assault of uh, Punjabis uh, throughout the late 80s and early 90s, that when there's impunity, the government is able to continue along these processes. And we see the same thing now happening in Kashmir, for example, uh, the similar incidents happening. And because there was no justice or no calling to account for what happened in Punjab, then of course the state feels that it can get away with things in um, in uh, in Kashmir today, and I think that's also important an important point to make. That I remember growing up, a lot of the narrative was Congress. Congress did this, but we can see here that the issue is not so much the political party; it's the system itself, um, and it's a system that silences minority voices and is looking uh, for a hegemony of some kind. Uh, so that's really the problem. The issue is not Congress or RSS. Both of them have been complicit in these types of acts in the past. Now, I want uh, we have a panel uh, a question here about books that have been authored by the panelists. Dr. Devgan, you have only authored articles, right? You have not authored a book. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So I I just have articles, and it's my doctoral dissertation for now. I hopefully it will be, it'll be a book uh, in the near future, but not yet. Yeah. 
Okay, and Dr. Devgan's uh, uh, doctoral thesis is available online. If you search on Google Scholar, you should be able to find it. Uh, Dr. Ishmeet Kaur has actually published one book. I have it here, right here. There you go. This is mirrored, so I keep going the wrong way. Uh, Black November, it's a really powerful book. It's what she's been talking about uh, throughout uh, the talk today. It begins uh, with survivor accounts or testimonies and then turns to other types of fictionalized narratives and poetry as well. Um, it's a really powerful book. I recommend you to all uh, buy them to support Dr. Jordan in this work. And uh, she actually let us know before the talk today that a new book should be uh, coming out soon that's more of an academic uh, book, so a more scholarly take on the events of November 84. This book is available on Amazon. I bought it on Amazon myself, so it's uh, freely available. Is there, uh, and I don't know how much you keep in, on top of what's happening legally, in line, was how, in line with how Sajjan Kumar was convicted, are there any other cases being brought uh, for other Congress MPs or significant people? Just been there from London is asking. Do you know Ryan, if there are other cases that are happening? As far as I know, there are none in the pipeline, like uh, Sajjan Kumar's uh, was, where um, a, a prosecution has been brought. That, that case against Kumar, like many uh, high-profile cases in India, was the product of over a decade's work. There are um, individuals who remain out there who have not been um, brought to account. And I know there are people that are working hard to try and advance those cases, um, but none have reached the stage where, as far as I'm aware, that there are active prosecutions against them. That's not to say that there isn't work going on, because I know that there is. there are very committed individuals who devote um, their lives to try and bring um, individuals to justice. So um, I wouldn't give up hope, but at the same time, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any others that, that are directly in the pipeline. Okay, thank you. We have a few questions here, which are criticisms of um, the SGPC or why Sikh Pratar is done in a certain way. I don't know if those questions are totally suited for our forum, so we're not gonna touch on those questions. Um, I have an interesting question here from Divish Singh from Delhi. And Divish Singh asks, would you agree that large sections of the liberal commentariat have a skewed understanding of 1984? So I think what he's asking is, what role did the left wing or the um, you know, journalists uh, scholars, what type of role in general did they play in 1984? And are they still recreating that narrative of the state or are they now critical of that? What do you find, Dr. Toldi? I think it's a very complicated uh, question, um, though very important question. Like there are approaches, uh, ways to approach uh, 84. And um, so, I mean, actually it is, very critical like how do we approach 84 so many of us like uh, you know uh, personally even me my approach is from political to from personal to socio-political uh, and engaging it under the cover of literature 
you know engaging with it under the cover of literature so uh, it all depends like uh, you know how is one positioning oneself but uh, um, uh, i do understand the sentiment of this uh, question that um, larger books which even i have ventured into most of them talk the state narrative when it primarily comes to june 84 mm. you no know? so uh, we do not have um, kind of fair material uh, you know and we may have a lot of material on uh, delhi um, 84 november uh, october november 84 but there's a lack of investigation primarily in the june 84 Mm-hmm. and there is repetition of the state narrative uh, several times you know mm-hmm. so so we really don't know what is the truth so what is required is an investigation into june right mm-hmm. and perhaps that investigation into june would also clarify a lot of things about december uh, october november 84 as well you know so um i don't have a direct answer to this question but i do know this that not much uh, research has gone into amritsar not much research has gone into harmandar saab uh, june kalukara yeah. Mm. yeah that's a very interesting point because when we hear the pantek narrative and we hear first hand accounts uh, for example um uh, by the small pamphlet that was issued by that human rights organization in late 84 about what happened in June 84 uh and we look at other uh uh first person accounts there the difference between them and the state narrative is just so wide um and uh, that can be frustrating i know for six in the diaspora because when you are talking about trying to get another narrative out there uh all of the information that's that's official and the uh, journalism especially is all you know telling a completely other narrative so i i agree that's a, that's maybe something that future sick academics uh and nostalgic academics can look into is what exactly occurred in june of 84 and to unpack what happened there and to also add to it like you know one thing which uh, we as a sikh community are doing we are walking on a very thin narrow lane so uh, you know anybody like uh, shruti rightly mentioned anybody talking about 84 means uh, you know is an extremist or maybe is you know of a particular group so um, in fact as a community we also need to be very careful in what we are producing you know so are we really producing voices of extremism which are not allowing allowing you know the authentic voices to come out so mm-hmm. so you know are our scholars really shying away from working on 84 you know is is uh, uh, what are we really scared of you know what's going to happen to us uh, because we're going to pre- produce perhaps an anti state narrative right so i think as a sick community we also it is time that we look inside our own selves and uh, uh, you know um, widen the lane on which we are working so so it's a very narrow lane uh, you know and and it's very easy for people to kind of uh, you know color you in um, 
particular colors uh, by calling you names or by you know uh, tagging you to certain extremist groups or non-extremist groups or discarding you as even leftists you know so this is a group where i don't go and listen to their talks oh this is a very fanatic group i don't listen to their talks so we have to be very careful about you know as a community how responsible are we being in producing these narratives hmm. uh, actually while you were speaking and i thought about this dr devgan uh, being the only non-sick here you've really dedicated your uh, scholarly career from your thesis forward um, to uh, uh, really exploring this very traumatic event for six what is it about this issue that spoke to you as a non-sick and why have you why have you committed so much of your time and energy to it i think that might be interesting for some of us to hear if you don't mind sharing with us oh, absolutely not yeah uh, so uh, i first started working on this project because this project was originally i was going to work on memory and trauma but i was planning to work on the memories of partition of 1947 so my grandparents and their siblings had gone through the partition they had moved from what is now pakistan to india and i actually grew up with those stories of partition and after after coming to the us and starting grad school i took a seminar in in a course uh, a seminar in trauma memory and identity and i started thinking about the partition and i was talking to people uh i was talking to people about partition and then at the same time i started working on this project on uh, embodied identity embodied religious identity what it meant to be conspicuous in the in the diaspora so i had never really seen myself as a person of color before i moved to the us you know i grew up in india uh, and i moved here when i was uh, you know like i said for grad school i was 25 years old so already had a you know a certain consciousness about myself and after moving here that idea of conspicuous identity uh, was something that i was interested in and i grew up in a family so i'm a punjabi hindu i grew up in a family where my parents would talk to each other in punjabi my my biji my grandmother would talk to us in punjabi so i felt that cultural affinity mm-hmm. with punjabi with with you know being punjabi and uh, i sort of you know all of that got connected and i start, started talking to people uh, who uh, wear the you know uh, symbols of faith and uh, i was just trying to explore the reasons for why they do that and one of the themes that kept emerging was the importance of 1984 in why people you know uh, started wearing these symbols of faith or or uh, went back to you know uh, they had they had gotten rid of them when they moved to the diaspora and started growing their hair again or you know started keeping these symbols again and so i sort of stumbled on it through that i was very intrigued by this idea of how uh, the second generation with no direct memories of you know of growing up in india suddenly not of this violence or any of the of these other events how they were so invested so so my connection with partition my connection with the punjabi culture and then this my interest in material culture memory trauma all of that came together and i started working on this topic um and uh, you know i realized how little uh, so there has been some work you know the question that someone had raised earlier veena das for example is an anthropologist who's done work on this there's been there is some scholarly literature on this but there just isn't enough there are people working on the partition now much more mm. started, uh, you know that work started emerging in the 1990s 
I think uh, the work on memory in 1984 is sort of situated within that framework, you know, of how partition was something that wasn't really talked about and how the state again, you know, every, you know, the Indian state, for example, celebrates the uh, Independence Day, but doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, commemorate the trauma of partition. So that's work that had been done, but 1984 much less so. so. Yeah, we can see definitely a a history of hiding trauma, uh, national trauma, and uh, sweeping it under the rug uh, from partition forwards within the Indian state narrative. Um, and this need for the Indian state to project itself as something that it often isn't. Um, I have a question here for Mr. Kohli, uh, and I don't know what, how, um, how sophisticated your knowledge is of the Indian court system, but I'll address this to you and you answer it as best you can. Are there weaknesses in the Indian legal system that hinder justice being delivered? If yes, is there anything we can do about it? So I, I, I've just been thinking about that because I saw the question pop up. And I think that the biggest issue or the biggest change that came about, which led to the conviction of Sajjan Kumar, in, in my view, was the quality of the jurisprudence, the quality of the judge and the quality of the jurisprudence that, that he was applying. India, like a number of other um, countries around the world, um, are, are still uh, developing their uh, judicial systems, and they're not quite at the sophisticated level that they'd like it to be, and that will come with time. We've got to remember India is a relatively new democracy. Um, and so it is remarkable that it, it has got to the quality that it has in terms of its jurisprudence uh, so far. So the, the judge who ended up overturning um, Sajjan Kumar's acquittal, there were two judges, Justice Goal and Justice Muralidhar. Justice Muralidhar, interestingly, was also the judge who determined that um, uh, consenting acts between homosexual individuals and private should not be criminalized. And these judges looking at their judgments are drawing upon international legal principles. They're looking at the law and thinking about how it exists in a global context and thinking about how it should be developed um, and whether a very narrow view should be taken or whether a wider view um, should be taken. And so I, I think the answer to the question is the weaknesses in the quality of the judiciary and jurisprudence, but we're seeing that quality improving with the justices that I've just mentioned. Um, is there anything we can do about that? Well, just having really good um, good quality jurists take up uh, high-powered roles in the courts. And I don't know how that happens in India. In, in, the, in the United Kingdom, there's an independent commission that appoints judges after a, a, a full, free, and fair exercise, and they're appointed on merit and the quality of their work. I don't know how it works in India, but I know that I'm seeing the emergence of some really high quality jurists, certainly at high court level. So that's one way that things are, are improving. Um, the application of the law without fear or favor, not being beholden to political power, having the rule of law as being um, the ultimate um, goal, as it were, not being answerable to anything else. These are the things that we need to start um, uh, emphasizing as important for the Indian justice system. I think the more that that happens, the more we will see better quality outcomes. Thank you. Um, I think we do, we would be remiss if we didn't make the point 
that the justice system has um, really had a, uh, a, a detrimental impact on the sick population post-84, that there's been a lack of justice and that the use of laws like TADA uh, have, were used and continue to be used by the state uh, as a form of oppression. So that is something that we should mention. Um, and we see that happening now with laws being passed by the current government, which are also being used in a similar manner. Um, you know, we have scholars and activists from all sorts of communities uh, being arrested right now across India. Um, and that's something that uh, you know, very troubling. And we've seen this happen uh, before and it's not a good sign. I don't know how much we can do or what we can uh, uh, do in the situation like this, but at least we can keep our attention focused on it and uh, spread information about it so that people are at least aware of what the current Indian state is doing. We're coming up uh, to the end now of our time. I have so many other questions I wanna ask you. There's a few questions here that I wasn't able to ask. Um, there's a question here that I don't know if it made sense to ask the three of you, and it was about the traditional Sikh response to Kalukare and the idea of taking justice into your own hands, for example, like Sukha and Jinda did with some of the um, uh, people who were responsible, uh, like Makan, um, for the 84 pogroms. Uh, I want to let the person know who asked the question that we're not ignoring the question, but also that some questions don't make sense for the panelists that we have, that that's not their area of expertise. And we, uh, we don't need to be asking them those uh, specific questions. So your question has been heard. There are a number of you um, uh, who are asking about what they can do. And uh, panelists like this, this time of year, bring up a lot of passion in people. Um, people want to know what books they can read. Uh, I'm sure that Sikh Research Institute can give a list of literature that's available. There is a lot of literature available on 1984. So those of you who are interested can peruse that list and we can produce that for you. Uh, and in terms of actually helping uh, the victims, I said that we would return to that. As someone who's talked to the victims most directly out of the four of us, uh, Dr. Jodri, do you have any concrete ways that six in the diaspora especially can assist those who survived the pogroms of 84? I think uh, I'll spell out uh, the need and, um, uh, you know, uh, what uh, just before this webinar, I had another webinar and this was being discussed there as well. Somebody talked about having a virtual memorial and then, you know, we all talked about having a physical memorial right uh, where the survivors are and so that the survivors can get certain kind of decent employment and, you know, they'll be able to cherish that memorial the best. Uh, the concern is that there's a lot of charity being done already. So these people actually do not need charity. They need empowerment. So, and this has to be done in a very, very organized structure. It's not a short-term 
you know, camp uh, or a workshop kind of a thing. It has to be done in a very organized structure. And uh, uh, so, so what is important is that uh, we all, uh, you know, should in a way ha think about uh, several ways in which uh, people can actually be empowered. And uh, I think um, uh, those who are in Delhi, those who are in India, they somehow need to initiate that. They need to take that up. And uh, of course, the diasporic th Sikhs have to think about it. But as a community, we have to come together. So, so as a community, you know, uh, I don't have a direct answer to it, but it needs to be thought. And like I said earlier, that we have, we are still in good time. You know, even though we have lost three and a half decades, we are still in good time. So if these things, you know, if, if these thoughts can come forward, people can put their brains together, something needs to be done. And there may be many more uh, colonies of this kind, which we are not aware of. You know, mm. this is one colony which we are aware of. Uh, people have not studied Kanpur and Bukharo. Mm. People don't know where what has happened to them, where, you know, the violence was equally um, uh, disastrous. Yeah. You know? so, so more research has to get into those uh, cities as well. So I think that's what I can uh, offer. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. You know, we recently, the name is uh, escaping me right now, but in the last decade, there was the remains of that village that was found in Haryana, where an entire village of six had just been erased from memory. And uh, it was just, you know, brought to attention now. So there are a lot of unspoken stories, a lot of, uh, uh, so much happened outside of Delhi. Um, all the incidents that happened on India's massive train network uh, with people who were targeted on trains across the country in a very systematic fashion. So, you know, when you have one or two or three people on one train, those uh, names, those people are erased in a sense. We've, we've forgotten them in a lot of ways. And that it's going to take a lot of work and research. Uh, I think the answer you're giving is not the easy one that we want to hear in the diaspora, which is, you can do this and this, or you can give money here, and that's how you solve this problem, which is something that is an easy way for us to deal with issues, is give money and hopefully that will fix it. Uh, I think you're asking something much deeper of us, and that is to sit with it, to think about it, and to build a community space so that we can empower uh, those who have suffered through this, and that will take uh, attention and thought and that will take time. And I think it'll take a lot of what we've been talking about today, which is narrative, uh, telling stories, listening to stories, uh, and building connections through stories. I wanna thank all three of you today for taking time out on uh, a busy time of year for everybody. Uh, I really appreciated Mr. Koli, Dr. Devgan, Dr. Trodri, thank you so much for this, uh, for being here with us today. Uh, on behalf of the Sikh Research Institute, I want to thank you as well. I'm going to pass things over to Manvinder Kaur, who will wrap up now. Uh, but thank you again. And to all of the people who have uh, joined us today, Vaiguruji Ka Khalsa, Vaiguruji Ki Fateh. Thank you so much, Santhi Singh. And thank you again on behalf of Sikri to all of our wonderful 
presenters for this very insightful conversation. Um, it was truly enlightening to be able to spend my Saturday with the four of you, um, to be able to sit in on this conversation. Thank you, Ishmeet Gore, for sharing your story and your work. Dr. Devgan, for, as Sankvir Singh said, telling our stories to us in the diaspora. And Mr. Kohli, for sharing your work, which I don't often get to engage with or consider. So it was a delight to be able to sit in on this conversation. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us, both audience members and presenters. Today's webinar will be ending now. Vaigujika Khalsa, Vaigujiki Sasser. You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Thank you.